Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. You can be turning in your Bible to um, 2 Peter chapter 2, but uh, today you'll note in your bulletin there is a a little insert uh, in sharing with us that today is uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, Reformation Sunday. And something we don't typically say a great deal about as a church and and even maybe as a denomination, but it is a very significant day. Uh, I've asked Brian Lindley to come and just give us a a word about uh, the significance of this day and why this is important for for all of us as believers. Brian, if you'll come, and and, uh, this is going to kind of serve as an introduction for my message today. Well, thank you, David. Um, this will be somewhat an introduction to the message and also an introduction to tonight. Um, we're having a night of worship, and it'll be somewhat of a Reformation-themed uh, night of worship. So as David said, uh, this Tuesday will mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and uh, Christians worldwide have been celebrating this all month, and um, more so today for sure. Um, but so what I just want to you know, give a, a minute to introduce is to answer the question, well, what was the Reformation? And why did it matter? Uh, how did it get started? And why would we still be celebrating that today? Um, to understand this, it helps to understand what the church was like prior to the Reformation. So imagine, if you will, that instead of us sitting here today in 2017, we were sitting in a church in Europe in 1517, 500 years ago. The church would look vastly different than it does today. For one, uh, any scripture that was read in the service, you would likely not understand. It would be read in Latin, a language that most Europeans understood about as well as you do. If you had a Bible at all, it would be printed in Latin, a language you would not be able to read. Um, This is not because at that time English Bibles or German Bibles or Italian Bibles Uh, would not have been something you could afford to buy, but because your church, the Catholic Church, specifically prohibited the Bible being published in a language that was easy for people to understand. Imagine being part of a church that thought it was protecting the people to hide from them the truth of God's Word. But that's exactly the state of the church prior to the Reformation, where the church believed that the Pope interpreted Scripture for the people, and therefore the Pope's teaching was more important than the words of Scripture. And the church was better protected to keep people from reading the word themselves lest they misunderstand it. To be frank, before the Protestant Reformation, the church thought the common person was too stupid to understand God's word for themselves. And thank the Lord uh, that that changed uh, through time and through the Reformation. So the church taught that the Pope was the highest authority, but the common person could see that the Pope in that day was one of the most immoral people and the church was following in her indecency and immorality. Martin Luther had the opportunity prior to the beginnings of the Reformation to visit Rome and there he was not um, as impressed with the glories or the splendors of the church as uh, people might be today, he visited during the time that Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel. 
But Luther wasn't amazed by the beauties of the church, but rather he was put off by the decadency and the corruption of Rome. The descriptions of the city in that day, the seat of the church, very similar to the way we might imagine New Orleans or Las Vegas today. Uh, it was such an immoral place where the church was centered that it was written in that time, if hell existed, she lay beneath Rome. If you were a church member in 1517, your parishioner was forbidden to marry by Catholic law, but most likely had a concubine and probably even children. This was the state of the indecency and morality of the church that, of that time. You would go to a church that not only was immoral, but had very terrible theology. In addition to hiding scripture from the people, in addition to teaching that the Pope's authority was higher than the word of God, uh, the church taught at that time that salvation, far from being the free gift that we proclaim today, was achieved partially through human effort that our merit cooperated with the grace of God in bringing about salvation. Faith, in that time, you would not understand to mean trust in Jesus or belief in Jesus, but you would be taught that faith meant faithfulness to the teachings of the church and obedience to the Pope. You would be taught that charity meant acts of obedience called penance, which included visiting holy sites, viewing relics, or purchasing even pardons from the church. So the church at that time believed that forgiveness came not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but that the Pope could grant forgiveness and even could write it out on a piece of paper and sell this. He would not give it freely. He would want some demonstration of your uh, you know, faith, and it would be best demonstrated by giving money to the church. And so these pardons or indulgences were sold to people, uh, promising them forgiveness in exchange for money, and this was primarily one of the ways that the church was supporting herself, more specifically that the Pope was supporting himself, because the common church member lived in poverty while the Pope lived in lavish luxury in Rome. So it was these indulgences that, that Martin Luther most specifically objected to. Luther was an Augustinian monk who taught theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And the church where, or the building where he lectured was also used by the church, and it was more commonly known as All Saints Church. November 1st is a Catholic holiday known as All Saints Day. It is a day where the church commemorates those who have uh, departed and went to be with Christ. And at that time, the Catholic Church also taught, as they still teach today, that some who departed did not immediately go into heaven, but went to be in purgatory. And that they're there in purgatory, they would pay for their sins through punishment. But that you could shorten the punishment by buying these indulgences on behalf of your loved ones. So, with the coming of All Saints Day at All Saints Church, Luther uh, observed that this was a very good time to speak out against this practice. So, on the eve of All Saints Day, October 31st, uh, All Saints Eve, later called All Hallows Eve, 
shortened to Halloween, and that's the connection between Halloween and Reformation Day, Luther published a list of 95 statements or theses for debate on the topic of indulgences. And he mailed this letter to the archbishop and several other Catholic leaders. He uh, was not trying to start a revolution. He wrote the letter in Latin, which was the private um, language of the church. But someone translated this letter into German and using the, the newly invented printing press, publicized it in mass and distributed it throughout Wittenberg and eventually it spread throughout Germany. Uh, the, the legend is that Luther nailed this to the door of the Wittenberg church. Um, there, it's not certain that he did so, but had he done so, it would not have been an act of defiance. The church door was also the university door, and it was used as a bulletin board for the community. So any notice of a debate or lecture to be given would be put on the door for all to see. But it wasn't the private letter in Latin that got Luther into trouble. It was the German letter that was mass-produced and spread all around. Luther was not the first to speak out against these things. There had been others who were all excommunicated by the church or burned at the stake. Um, if you disagreed with the church at that time, you could not go to another church because there was no other church. There was only the one Catholic church. And to go against the Pope was to go against Christian theology, was to risk being labeled a heretic and excommunicated. And eventually this is what happened to Luther. He was brought up on charges, he was tried, and through a process that took a number of years, he was branded by the church to be a heretic and put out of the church. But at this time, it, there was a, just a ripeness for revival or reformation. The people could tell that the church had become corrupt, and so therefore they were, they were eager for change. And so now, when Luther was put out of the church, there was a large number of people who favored his teachings more than they did the Pope's. And they were hearing in him a new gospel, the same gospel that was written by Paul and Peter, but now proclaimed anew that salvation was by faith alone, through Christ alone, and it was for the glory of God alone, and that all of this comes to us through Scripture alone. And this gospel is what kind of breathed into the fire of the Reformation and fanned the flames. And so when Luther was put out of the church, he essentially started a new church, a new following um, of people who would preach and teach this gospel. And this developed into the Protestant Reformation that ultimately split the church. So if you today, as I hope uh, being here with us this morning, believe that Scripture is your sole authority for life and practice, you owe that to the Protestant Reformation. If you hold with us at Lucy Baptist Church that salvation is by faith alone and comes through the grace of God alone and that it is in Jesus Christ alone that we are forgiven, then you owe that to the Protestant Reformation. If you hold to the priesthood of the believer, that is that you confess your sins to Jesus Christ, he is your mediator, and not any human being that mediates for you, but that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is your mediator who makes intercession for you on behalf, intercession to his Father on behalf of you. You owe that to the Protestant Reformation. And so this is why we celebrate this today, and this is the significant of it 500 years later. And tonight, as we gather together, we will be singing some songs that are specifically associated with that. 
and we will be looking more specifically at some of these uh, truths of the Reformation. So, thank you, David. Appreciate that. With your Bibles open there to 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, we included part of uh, verse 3 last week, but we're going to uh, really take the second part of verse 3 and go through chapter t- uh, 10, verse, uh, verse 10, verse A. So again, the Reformation, um, uh, which began 500 years ago, uh, lar- largely initiated. There were certainly others uh, in history that had an impact on Luther's life and on that uh, again, uh, you know, we may question, was there, uh, was there a true church? Were there those? And, and uh, no doubt uh, there were. They were uh, obviously in the minority and, and, and maybe not a great deal uh, we, that we know. But, um, but certainly this was, he was very instrumental in the use of God uh, in confronting these um, unscriptural teachings and practices of the church. And, uh, and, and he, as, as Brian has said, uh, Express these through these uh, 95 theses and in a desire and a hope to correct these wrongs. And that ties right in with, with uh, our messages through Second uh, Peter uh, and, and really what was going on, what Peter was seeking to do as he was confronting uh, false teaching and the, and the potential of false teaching within the church in an effort to, uh, uh, to prevent that from taking place and from spreading. And so what happened, you wonder, how did the church get to the condition that it was in at the time of Luther? And again, it happened because people didn't stand firm. They didn't take a st- stand on the Word of God and the things that Scripture is very clearly. And gradually, as we've talked about in last week's message, those false uh, teachings just slipped in. And, and little by little, people uh, were, did nothing about it. About it. We're unwilling to take a stand, as, as Scripture calls us to. So look with me, if you will, to 2 Peter. We're going to pick up there with uh, uh, just uh, the, the latter part there, uh, uh, verse 3, and read through chapter 10, uh, verse 10, rather, first part of verse 10. Again, he's describing this uh, in verse 4, for a long time, verse 3, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the ungodly under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and cleanness and despise authority. And from this passage today, I want to bring a message I've entitled, The God of Judgment is also the God of Mercy. Join with me for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we thank you for your presence here today, and we do thank you for this day that we celebrate with other believers around the world. We thank you for the authority and the truth of the Word of God, that it alone has authority for us and to which we look to all truth and and practice 
Uh, we thank you for the truth of the gospel contained in the Word of God. We thank you, Father, uh, for the truth and for, for the, the, the wonderful provision of grace that you've given to us, that salvation is by grace alone. We thank you for, as we've seen even in this wonderful book in 2 Peter, that, that by your grace you uh, provide us with faith in order to trust in Christ and repent of our sin. We thank you also, Lord, uh, that, that salvation is, is through Christ alone, that not, not of any merit, not of anything that we could offer, but we thank you that Christ's death for us uh, Lord, it was fully sufficient to cleanse us, your precious blood, to cleanse us from all sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a risen Savior and Lord. And we thank you that all of this is not for us, but for your glory alone. And we pray, Lord, you'll bless this time we have in your word today, and that you would speak to hearts and lives of, of your children. We thank you for the truth that you are a God of grace and mercy, but we also recognize clearly, and even in this passage, as the people were perhaps wondering in this day, were, were you going to deal with these unfaithful teachers? And, and even though it, it appeared to them perhaps that, that your judgment was being delayed, you were saying to us through the Apostle Peter that, that judgment was certain and was coming. And may we see that as well, even as we saw it true in, in, in Luther's day as well. Lord, bless our time in your word. Be glorified in the hearts and lives of people as we respond in obedience to the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. So Peter wrote his second letter, as we've said, to, to help believers uh, stand against uh, this, these false teachers and false teaching that was slipping into the, into the churches uh, of this time. And, and as we've already seen them, as we've looked at some of the things that they were advocating and teaching, uh, they, were, they were teaching uh, that they were advocating immoral living. And like you've heard described today in the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day, they were exploiting people in the church with sensuality and greed. They, as we're going to see in chapter 3, they, they denied the second coming of Christ. Uh, and, uh, and said that you know, Jesus would, would not come and, and certainly not in power and glory and would not judge people. Uh, they encouraged uh, sexual freedom, as we, as we see mentioned over and over again. That was an aspect of their, of their teaching. They would applaud uh, much of the uh, sexual freedom that's being taught today by some churches, so-called churches, uh, and they assured people that a loving God would never judge anyone. Have you ever heard that kind of language? Well, that was the kind of thing that was being taught by these false teachers that Peter was uh, seeking to uh, deal with and help the church deal with. Well, again, he shows uh, Peter shows his readers in the passage that we have read today that, that although God's judgment uh, may be delayed uh, and appears uh, to be delayed at times, that, uh, that at times that, that God is certainly going to judge. And he uses, as we have see here in this passage, three Old Testament examples uh, from Scripture of, of how God uh, obviously judged sin and sinners. And, uh, and, that, and two of those examples, he also showed uh, the uh, way in which also in the midst of that, God delivered his, uh, his believers, his children, if you will. Uh, he delivered them from judgment and even uh, from temptation, enabling them and enabling the believers of Peter's day, enabling believers of our day. So there's encouragement that from this passage that, that again, that God is both the God of judgment and also the God of of mercy, so we're seeing some of the attributes of God that are demonstrated even in in this passage. So, with you, with me, as we look at this passage today, I want you to notice three truths again as we consider the God of judgment, 
is also the God of mercy. First of all, notice that God in his holiness must punish sin and sinners. God in his holiness must punish sin and sinners. We saw that beginning there in verse, uh, the second part of verse 3 about the, the judgment of God that he, that he made very clear that it's coming. And again, he's keeping in mind these false teachers that were, uh, were at work in this time. And, uh, and again, he's talking, he certainly included the Old Testament uh, prophets and as well as New Testament, uh, as, as those false teachers that were plaguing the New Testament church and continue to this day and will, con- will continue until, until the church is safely at home with Christ. We will always have to battle and challenge that. And that is why this is a so important word for us in our day as well. And again, to illustrate that, in verse 4, he uses these examples uh, to describe and show this aspect of God's nature, of his holiness, and uh, as well as, again, these, uh, his judgment against sin and sinners in the past. The first example there in, in verse 4, he says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be delivered uh, for judgment. So, so he's describing here these, these angels who rebelled against God. So the question uh, would be for us, uh, no doubt, which, what, which angels is he referring to? And if you uh, uh, get a hold of several commentaries, you'll find that there are some differences of interpretation. Different people have different positions as to which angels he's referring to. Some believe, of course, that he's talking about the original angels uh, who were angels in heaven with God. And, uh, of course, Lucifer stays a rebellion against God. Lucifer, whom we now know to be Satan or the devil, he led the great rebellion uh, against. And, and uh, certainly uh, uh, any fallen angels would be among those who were in that in that. Uh, uh, attempt to uh, to take over the throne of God and and from which God cast them from heaven as scripture describes uh, and uh, uh, and so uh, that that's one uh, one uh, interpretation that he's referring to those angels the, that, that fell from heaven with Lucifer with Satan others believe that the, he has reference to Genesis chapter 6 uh, where um, the, there's a, a description there of the sons of God as we we see it that, that is sometimes a reference Reference to angels, a term that is sometimes uh, uh, given to angels. And according to this interpretation, the Bible says there that, of course, these, these sons of God, uh, in, 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 some believe inhabited, uh, were inhabited by uh, these, these fallen angels, inhabited the human bodies of men. And the Bible says there that they cohabited with the daughters of men. And according to this, this interpretation, their offspring uh, were the superhuman race of the Nephilim. Uh, Jude 6 seems to, uh, would, is, is often used to support that, where it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under the gloomy darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Well, others, however, and my Old Testament professor in seminary, believe that the uh, sons of God are references to, are as a reference to the godly line of Seth and not fallen angels. Well, which view is correct? I don't know. But something I do know, and we know, that God judged them. Scripture's very clear here that he judged them, and we need to recognize that's the point. The point is, is that God did judge them. 
And uh, he immediately, the Bible says here, he cast them into hell. The word here for hell is, I think, only used here in the New Testament this one time. It's the word, it's the word Tartarus. Uh, and it was uh, considered to be a place reserved for the most wicked of spirits. Scripture says that he, he committed them to chains or pits of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So uh, their, their judgment, uh, these ain't, obviously we know that there are demons uh, today roaming the earth. We know there are demons. Uh, they are these, these, uh, because Satan, of course, is not omnipresent. They do the bidding and the work of Satan himself, the devil himself. Uh, but obviously there are some, as Scripture indicates, in both of these passages who are even now held uh, in, in their temporary judgment until their final eternal judgment. Well, so he uses these examples. That if, in other words, if he would judge these angels, certainly that's an indication that he would judge any rebellious people who would rebel and who would turn against God. And even these false teachers uh, that are still uh, roaming about and still doing their work upon the earth of teaching and seeking to corrupt the church with, with uh, and the, the truth of the gospel with, with corruption. Uh, so then the, verse 5, he gives them another example. In verse 5, he gives the example. He says, and, and did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah. So he gives the example here of, of Noah. Uh, one of eight people, he says, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So again, he uses that very familiar story, one that we, uh, that we do know very clearly in, in Scripture, in Genesis, uh, because in fact, you may be told somewhere that the flood is not literal and it didn't really cover the earth. That's not what the Bible says, and we believe the Bible, amen? And so the, uh, the, the Bible says that the, the, at this time, the world was a very, very wicked place. I, I often hear, and I agree with you, that our world is a wicked place. We sometimes have people say, man, I think the world is worse than it's ever been. Well, look at Genesis chapter 6. Listen to me as I read it, Genesis 6, 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Folks, listen, uh, the world was such a wicked place at the time of Noah there would, have, there would have been no gatherings of this many people at anywhere. And uh, I'm not saying, I'm not here to say to you that the world is not a wicked place. It certainly is. But at the day of Noah, it was even far worse. So wicked that God, in his holiness, had to punish, had to judge sin. And, and of course, we know that he did that through this flood that covered the entire earth and destroyed the whole population. Only Noah and his family, a total of eight, uh, and, uh, and uh, eight of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal uh, who were saved, uh, the, of the species at least, on the, on the ark. And, uh, and, and the Bible describes it here as, a, as destruction in verse 6, which means complete overthrow and total ruin. Every, uh, it was, a, it was a, a, a tremendous destruction. God destroyed them. And, and so God is saying, listen, if, if God would destroy the earth, if, if he would destroy all the people except for Noah and his family because of the corruption and wickedness, then yes, judgment is coming upon these 
false teachers who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that last week. They deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny his deity. They deny his lordship. And yes, judgment is coming upon them. And it's certain and it is sure God in his holiness must punish sin and sinners. And then in verse 6, he gives another example. Again, the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, we read about that in the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, uh, chapter 19 tells that, that uh, this destruction that came upon them, and if you'll remember, Abraham uh, interceded on the, the behalf, you know, all the way down. If you could just, if there was even just 10, would you spare him? And God would have spared it for 10. There were not 10 who were righteous. That's how wicked it was in these cities of Sodom. And, and Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 19 that, that it rained brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And again, I, I was a little hasty a moment ago. The word destruction is here in verse 6, and it means complete overthrow and total ruin. And again, the Bible says here that everything was, including people, were reduced to ashes. In fact, they're there's no, you know, we have a record and, and evidence of ruins of so many of the ancient cities and uh, in those listed in scripture and archaeology has uncovered them. No, nothing has been recovered of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, some believe that maybe it's under the Dead Sea, uh, and, uh, but we don't know that. Uh, and, and just certainly indicating the reality and the truth of scripture, they were totally, completely destroyed. Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, God is showing how the destruction of that we talked about. Again, if, you know that Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, is seeking to challenge these uh, teachers who, again, were teaching sexual immorality. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the sin of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, from which the, the word sodomy comes from, uh, and those who try to defend homosexuality uh, simply cannot do it from Scripture because the Scripture is very, very clear uh, that God, uh, again, God is showing that this, uh, this immediate judgment uh, that came upon them is, is a picture of the eternal judgment that God is going to bring. And then on to verse 9. He concludes from, from these examples as we see it in this passage. He said, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under, under punishment for the day of judgment. So God was saying this, this judgment that came upon them, you know, this was a, the immediate judgment. But there's, there's coming a greater day of eternal judgment. Even now, those, we, we sometimes question, what happens to people who, who die? Again, as you read the passages in Revelation, the Bible says, yes, they are immediately separated from God. As we saw in that Luke 16 passage about the rich man and Lazarus, that the rich man who, re, who was a God rejecter, he was separated from God. He went to, to Hades. And ultimately, the Bible says that this is, this is going to be cast into the lake of fire, which burns forever. And ever, and so he's saying these are these are pictures of judgment, the ju judgment of God, and and the, the judgment now may be temporal, but it's going to be eternal one day as they're cast into the lake of fire. But but again, he, he concludes that these these examples of people who experienced judgment then are, are they're like prisoners awaiting their final eternal judgment. He goes on in verse ten to describe these 
false teachers of whom he is directing these, these words concerning judgment. He says, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of the uncleanness and despise authority. We could sum it up by, by saying these false teachers were morally, and the word literally means polluted, and they were spiritually rebellious. And we know from their example and many, many others, and still today, that unbiblical teaching leads to ungodly living. And certainly we saw that. We see that in the example, as Brian has shared with us, about what was going on uh, during this time, even in the church. Once again, unbiblical teaching leads to ungodly living. You say, well, is, that, is hell only reserved for those then who are, who are false teachers or who are living immorally? The Bible makes it clear that, that, that judgment is for all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul described in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 um, and 9, in, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So again, we must understand, dear friend, it's not that, that God is too good and is too loving to punish sin and sinners. God is too good not to punish sin and sinners. God, in His holiness, must punish sin and sinners. Again, Luther as a Catholic monk was, was utterly frust, frustra, frustrated. He, he, under, he understood something of the judgment of God. And, and, uh, he, but he, he was so frustrated by the impossibility of, of pleasing a holy God. He, he fasted for, for long periods of time and and he uh, spent days in prayer vigils and stayed out in the cold without, without a blanket uh, and almost froze to death in an effort to uh, subdue his flesh and to try to please God. Sometimes he would be, he would be proud of his uh, ability to overcome his sinfulness and, and he would feel good about himself and then he would begin to question, but have I, have I fasted enough? Am I poor enough? And that would result in a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. He would cry out in the, his room, his cell as they knew it. He would cry out, oh, my sin, my sin, my sin. And again, a hopelessness and a helplessness under the condemnation of sin. And that may seem like a terrible thing. And, and maybe you've known people in that state or maybe you've been in that state and you, you think, oh, maybe you just need to read a good book or, or we need to try to make you feel better about yourself. That's the world's explanation. Better self-esteem, not feeling so bad about yourself. But oh, dear friend, as horrible as that may seem that he had to go through such terrible punishment seemingly or, or, or a realization of condemnation, we're going to see how God ultimately used that. So I want to ask you this morning, are you struggling under the condemnation, under the weight this morning of your sin, of realization of your sinfulness, realization of your deserving of judgment? If that's where you are, dear friend, then again, recognize that's a part of what God's law is intended to do, is to show us our sin and to be a schoolmaster that will cause us to recognize our sin. Do you realize that you deserve death and hell? Have you come to that place in your life. But second, I want you to see not only that God in His holiness 
must punish sin and sinners. But God in his love rescues his godly ones from judgment. Again, two of the examples that he cites here from from history show how God rescues the godly from judgment. We see that in the example of of Noah. The Bible says here that he he saved uh, Noah, uh, one of eight people. He saved Noah and his his family from, from judgment. The word saved, your translation may have the word preserved Noah. And the word means to guard a person that he remain safe. So the Lord preserved Noah and his family in the safety of the ark. Genesis chapter 7 verse 16 briefly says the Lord shut him in. And what a beautiful picture that is of Noah and his family. God shut the door. And uh, Genesis 6 verse 8 says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So was Noah perfect? Absolutely not. Noah was a sinner as well. He had to acknowledge that himself to have a right relationship with God. But the pattern of his life uh, was that of obedience to God. And again, the ark is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of, of Christ. Scripture uses that more than once, that Christ is the ark, the ark of safety. And when we come to recognize our sinfulness, separation from God, our deserving of hell as Luther did, and we recognize that and cry out to him, repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Christ, surrendering to him as our Lord, then the Bible says we are put into Christ and therefore we are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're safe from eternal judgment and we are are safe from eternal hell. So, So Noah is an example of how God Uh, God in his love rescues his godly ones from judgment. But also, Lot is an example of that as well. He rescued Lot and and his daughters from the judgment that he brought on Sodom and Gomorrah. This passage calls Lot righteous. Uh, You know, uh, if we didn't have the New Testament to say that, we might wonder about it. But the fact that God delivered him is an indication that he was one of those righteous that Abraham had asked God if he would spared the city for, but he couldn't find 10. There weren't 10, but there was a lot at least, and his daughters at least. And, uh, and, and so, uh, though he, he neither was perfect, he, but like Abraham, uh, his uncle, we believe that obviously, like Abraham, he had believed God. He had placed his faith in Jehovah God, Yahweh God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. That's the only way any of us can be righteous. The only, only way any of us can have a relationship with God is by His grace and His forgiveness of our sin as we believe in Him, as we trust Him and Him alone, and we experience His grace. So again, but I want to remind you that being rescued from these judgments did not mean that, that either Noah, his family, Lot, his daughters, didn't mean that they had no suffering, did it? Absolutely not. Scripture is very clear that all who live godly will suffer persecution. These men suffered pain and loss. Their families, Noah and his family, suffered persecution and ridicule over those years of of constructing an ark when there had never even been rain. Do you understand that? 
Imagine uh, how crazy people thought he was. I'm sure people were continuously coming by. So building the ark, uh, you know, was, was a, became a source of ridicule and, and persecution. And even when the flood began, just think about that. Only, only Noah and his family, they had family members, no doubt, that didn't make the ark. They had to leave family members behind. They heard the cries of people as the floodwaters began to, to rise. But, they, but God had shut them in. They, heard that, they had that suffering. They lost, they lost everything. And, and so they certainly suffered uh, because of that. And building of the ark was hard work, certainly. But God protected them. God rescued them. And then you think about Lot as well. Rescuing these, uh, them from judgments didn't mean they didn't suffer pain or loss either. Uh, again, they, the, 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 he lost his wife when she disobeyed, rebelled. She became a pillar of salt, we read. And, and the, uh, his daughters, their, their husbands uh, would not respond and they laughed at, uh, at Lot. And, and so uh, they lost their husbands and they lost other family. They lost, every, again, everything they had. But again, we as God's people like them, will be rescued, if you will, uh, from condemnation. And, and we have that, that, that truth. And so again, this is a, a picture to them, a picture to us. Even though this was temporal punishment of that day, it, in, in well, it is well and, and, and temporal judgment. We as God's people who are in Christ are protected from eternal judgment and eternal separation from God. And dear friend, that is why today, if you're here without Christ... You've never repented of sin. You've never trusted in Christ. That is why we come today to encourage you to consider your need, desperately to consider your need for repentance and faith and surrendering to Christ because that is the only way you can be certain of, of, uh, of uh, protection and preservation, if you will, from eternal destruction in hell forever. Again, the Bible says in verse 9, as we read earlier, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now, we've been talking about God uh, delivering us from destruction and condemnation. Now, he, he talks about trials. Your, the New King James translates it temptations. And the word here literally means an attack with intent to destroy. So he's not talking here about being delivered from Destruction. He's illustrated that very clearly. But what is he talking about here when he talks about being uh, rescued from trials or temptations? Well, again, uh, Bob Deffenbaugh uh, explains this. He says, Peter is saying that God is able to keep the righteous righteous, even when they are living in a most unrighteous environment. God was able to keep Noah, Lot, and their families from succumbing to the temptation of their society, even when it was so corrupt that it was right for divine judgment. And that's important as well. That's important to us as well. Again, because, you see, God doesn't just save us so that we can say, oh, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And I can join right into the, with the world, and I can live just like the world. And you see, because, again, these families, these individuals are set apart as an example of those who are set apart from the world. Not perfectly, nor are we. But again, God is able, God is saying to us, in the midst of a wicked world, in the midst of a wicked society all around us with corruption, even far worse, I believe you would agree, in Noah's day than in our own. Even far worse around Sodom and Gomorrah, 
perhaps in what we're living in, even though it seems like we're getting closer all the time. But we, God is saying, I'm able to deliver you from those temptations. I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm able to enable you to live victoriously in this wicked world, to be salt and to be light and to stand for me. That's what God is encouraging us with in addition to this, that he rescues us from judgment, but he also rescues us from this temptation so that we can be set apart for him and, as we're going to see in a moment, be his ambassadors in this wicked world. Well, to tell you more about Luther's story, his, his uh, going through this tremendous this tremendous condemnation and this effort to try to, uh, to appease a, a holy God and unable to do so. His superior, because he saw such anguish in his soul, uh, he, he, he encouraged him there in the monastery. He encouraged him to, uh, to uh, read the scripture uh, and to read particularly the writings of Paul to try to find some comfort to his soul. So he did that. He, he began to pour over his Latin Bible and, and, and he began to read uh, in the book of Romans. And in early in the first chapter, he read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which translates, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the, to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God for in, the righteousness, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in that moment, he says that he had a breakthrough from God. The Spirit of God revealed to him that righteousness is not by works. It's not by penance. It's not by indulgences or absolutions or by prayers to the saints. But it is by a righteousness that comes by faith alone. Again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He came to recognize that at that time. I want to ask you this morning, by the work of God's Spirit, not of your own doing, but like Luther, have you come to, for a, to a breakthrough? Have you come to that realization that salvation is not of your own doing? That righteousness is not of your own producing, that it is by grace alone, by faith, in faith, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have you come to that wonderful breakthrough by the work of God's Spirit in your life? Thirdly, I want you to see that God in His grace sends a witness to call people to repentance. God in his grace sends a witness to call people to repentance. There's a word to us here from both of these examples of Noah and Lot. Both were raised up as a witness to warn people of the judgment to come and to call them to repentance. Verse 5 calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Now, we, we don't read a lot about that, quite honestly, in the, in the book of Genesis, but we know uh, this epistle is inspired as is Genesis, and, uh, and obviously he did. And certainly in the midst of that, God, uh, uh, he was preaching. As, again, that, that building of that ark sure gave him a, a lot of opportunity to give an explanation for what he was, was doing. Uh, and and uh, John MacArthur says the preaching was probably harder 
than the building. Hard jobs, he says, are easier to deal with than hard people. But he kept on building. He kept on preaching. He kept on standing. Yes, his faith and his obedience were ridiculed. He suffered, no doubt, great persecution during that time. But he kept on. He kept on. And he kept on. You may look at him and say, well, he wasn't very successful as a preacher. Oh, yeah? Well, his whole family was converted. His whole family believed the witness of their father. So I'd call that fruitful, wouldn't you? God obviously blessed him and used him. But he kept on preaching. He kept on preparing, doing what God had called him to. And in Hebrews 11 says that even in so doing, he condemned the world through his faithful preaching of the truth and through his faithful witness to the holiness and power of God. But not only Noah, but also Lot. God raised up Lot as a witness to the wicked city of Sodom. And again, we may wonder and question, but what was Lot even doing there? Well, and, and, and was he, where do you see him witnessing? Well, we know for sure that when, the, when he was told, that it, the Lord told him that, that it was time to leave, that the Bible says there that in Genesis 19, 14, that he tried to warn his sons-in-law uh, of the, of the, that God was going to destroy the city. And they laughed at him. They, they, they thought he was joking. Uh, they just thought it sounded so ridiculous. And again, even his own wife, we see, looked back in unbelief and disobedience to God. His daughters, however, believed and were saved. And he gives, uh, he gives evidence, I believe, of his righteousness. In, in verse 8, where the Bible says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. I might ask you today, how, how tormented are you by the wickedness of our world? How comfortable are you with, with uh, seeing things on television that, make, that uh, are in, obviously inappropriate and, and wicked? Uh, how, how comfortable are you inviting people into your home all the, via the television or the internet that use words that, that surely are inappropriate for uh, and ungodly and dishonoring to Christ. Do you, uh, do you, do, is, your, is your soul tormented? Does that break your heart? Now, I don't mean in a spirit of condemnation of people. We understand that, that wicked people do what uh, wicked people do. They, they, they behave in the way that is true of their heart. And I don't, I'm not saying to you that we're to go around in a, in a spirit of constantly condemning people and things that we do and say. But again, it does grieve our heart, does it not? Does sin not grieve the heart of the child of God? It should. We should never become get used to the darkness. We should always, as light, recognize that that we and it should. If if more than anything, it should. We should be brokenhearted over the the lostness of people that are headed for eternal hell apart from Christ, and desiring that Christ would save their soul and wanting to give them the good news of the gospel. Well, God has called us to be a witness to our world. Too, and to warn people, just as did Noah and did Lot, of the judgment to come. And to give them the wonderful good news of the gospel. And like Lot and, and like Noah, our witness starts at home. It starts with our family. And then we also go to our neighbors and we go to our co-workers and we go to our classmates and, and, and we, uh, we go to our Facebook friends or whoever it may be and we proclaim the gospel, the wonderful message of the gospel. Well, Luther was gloriously saved and set free. 
this good news of, the, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, was too good to keep to himself. He not only had to proclaim the gospel, as you've heard described today and as Brian has shared, but, but he uh, had to stand against uh, the, the false doctrine that was corrupting the church. And that's why, again, on October 31st, he nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, confronting the indulgences. When asked to recant sometime later, he said, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures, and my conscience is bound in the Word of God. He said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me, God. So he was excommunicated from the church and declared a heretic. But as Brian has shared, he continued to forge ahead, translating the Bible into German so that the people could have the Bible in their own language and could read it and study it for themselves, as Scripture teaches us we are to do. And not only that, but, but again, helping to be a tool, an instrument of restoring music to worship. Before, if you went to a service, you would hear uh, just chanting from the priest in Latin. But now he uh, put, wrote him some 37, I believe, uh, songs that could be sung by the people in worship and, and brought, uh, was instrumental in helping to bring joy, writing that famous hymn, among others, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther, like Noah and Lot, was a very imperfect man, but he was God's witness for his generation. He stood. Will you? This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.